of Christ. As you hear the word proclaimed now, let every thought be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. I'd ask if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. As well as in your bulletin is an outline. Use that to take notes. Malachi 1, 2 through 5. Malachi has seven sections, and six of which, um, as you'll see as we walk away through this book, deal with um, the pitfalls, struggles that God's people fell into um, at this time. And 2 through 5 is one of those pitfalls that God addresses with his people. So we're going to read 2 through uh, 5. I'll, I'll begin with verse 1 for the context, just as it's the beginning. And then uh, we'll, we'll uh, fellowship around 2 through 5. This is God's word. Brothers and sisters, let me invite you, therefore, to stand together with me as we read God's word. Hear now the word of King Jesus. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down but we will return and rebuild what we, um, and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of fellowship, the privilege of hearing your word and fellowshipping with you around your word. And, and Lord, through this foolishness, uh, uh, through this foolish means, nevertheless, Lord, to be fed spiritually and to commune with you spiritually. Lord, bless this time, we pray. Give me grace to preach with fidelity. And Lord, grant us grace that we might be a people of faith that would trust you, O Lord, and that this would be wed indeed with, with faith and, and repentance and, and longing in, um, for you and clinging to you. Lord, bless this time we pray into Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In his commentary on the book of Malachi, G. Campbell Morgan gave a description of the people to whom Malachi is written, well, was written and is written. He says of these Jews, he says, they have been most particular and strict in outward observances, but their hearts have been far away from their ceremonials. And by that he means the things they do in their context of their service. So God, reading the word, worship, the whole bit. They have been boasting themselves in their knowledge of truth, responding to that knowledge mechanically, technically, But their hearts, their lives, their characters, the inwardness of their natures have been a perpetual contradiction in the eye of heaven to the will of God. And when the prophet tells them what God thinks of them, they, with astonishment and impertinence, look into his face and say, 
we don't see this at all. To translate it into the language of the New Testament, having a form of godliness, they deny the power. I think Morgan has spoken well. This book is written to what I have identified as um, uh, mechanistic Christians, or what we might call mechanistic Christianity. What do I mean by, uh, by that? What I mean uh, by that is that it's, it's, it's a Christianity where it's people, it's uh, participants, do all the right things. But they're not doing it out of love for God. They're not doing it out of a desire to, to honor God, to fellowship with God, to exalt God. They're doing it because that's their duty. That's what Christianity is. In other words, it's going through the motion uh, Christianity. That's mechanistic uh, Christianity. Now, when you go through the motions, when, when your walk w- uh, with God becomes that, there are predictable problems, predictable errors, predictable pitfalls that you and I will fall into. And Malachi is written to address those predictable pitfalls when God's people enter into a mechanistic, a mechanical relationship with God. Void of loving, knowing, serving, exalting, fellowshipping, enjoying Christ, but characterized by going through the motions because, well, we both know this is Malachi's day. We know what happens if you don't. The exiles. So they're not going to give up the motions, but the heart is far from God. That's one of the struggles of, of the, the six. The first one we're going to deal with, the most important one, is the one Jesus Christ, God, addresses here, and that's the questioning of the love of God. Mechanistic Christianity invariably leads to its adherence, questioning whether God loves them. Listen to the words of Boyce, speaking of those who've succumbed to mechanistic Christianity. He wrote, this is precisely what thousands of self-righteous, church-going people do. They do not consider themselves irreligious. I mean, we're doing the right things. On the contrary, they think of themselves as people whom God, in the very uh, necessity of the case, must approve. Hey, unlike our fathers who didn't do these things and went into exile, we're doing these things, therefore God must be pleased. We're doing what God wants. But whenever they have a problem in life, If a job falls through, if a romance goes sour, if sickness or death touches someone close to them, or even if they fall sick themselves, they immediately blame God. I thought you loved me. Does that resonate with any of you here? Well, it resonates with me. When my walk with God revolves around my duty, doing what I'm supposed to do, when I spend time daily in, in, that, in God's Word, why? Because that's what good, good uh, Christians do. When I go to church and I never miss, why? Because that's what good uh, uh, Christians do. When I do the right things, when I strive to be holy, because that's what good uh, Christians do. Brothers and sisters, I've eviscerated Christianity. I've removed it from the gospel. I've, I, I've, I've removed the focus of it, which is Christ, God, fellowshipping with Him, enjoying Him, glorifying Him. And all that's left then is my what I do and the base upon which I do it, which is to placate God, make sure that I do what I need to, to do. So when bad times happen, 
difficulties, the first thing that comes to my mind, that comes to our hearts is, I thought you loved me. And that's the people to whom Malachi is written. That's the first struggle facing them. So God addresses this. And just note this, at the, at the very outset, the fact that God condescends and addresses this issue with his people is a glorious reflection of the love of God. The very fact that he's suffering long with these people tells us he's a God of love. He's not casting them out. He doesn't say, get out of my sight. No, the whole book of Malachi is a glorious testimony of the love and the grace and the compassion and the tender-hearted character of God. In fact, the fact that he raises up the very first one is his love should color everything we see and study in the rest of Malachi. All of Malachi should be read with the tinted glasses that God loves you. Okay, so let's, let's begin. Notice with me the fact of God's love. God establishes it in verse 2a. I have loved you, says the Lord. Such profundity. Incredible statement. We tend to think that God's love is a New Testament phenomenon, but the reality is God's love is richly described in the Old Testament. Look at Abraham days, the days of Isaac and Jacob, the like. Brothers and sisters, God's love is on every page of the Bible, every page of the Old uh, Testament. Now, how would we define it theologically? Well, to define theologically God's love, the fact that he's loved them, We go to John 3.16. That is the standard for the biblical definition of love. God so loved the world. That doesn't mean he felt warm about it. Thus, God's love is not an emotion. It's not. It's a determined act of his will. He deigned to love this world. And what did he do? He gave. So it's a determined act of the will that always results in a determined act of self-giving. He gave himself for those who are utterly unworthy the world. God so loved the world. That's the formal definition of the love of God. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Now, we could spend weeks, months, if not a lifetime, and we will spend eternity growing in our understanding and apprehension of the love of God. Because, brothers and sisters, it's infinite, eternal, and changeable. Yet, I'm not sure if, 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 if we spent the next six months studying all of what the Bible says about God's love. I'm not sure that it would be any, we would be any different from where we are today on account of our, our propensity to despise what is familiar. Tozer wrote these words, Whenever you hear God's truth, you will go either in the direction you are moved, you'll either apply it, or you will just wait. And if you wait, you will find that the next time you hear the truth, it will not move you quite as much. The next time, it will move you less. And the time will come when when that truth will not move you at all. Brothers and sisters, that is where God's people were in Malachi's day. These were not Bible-less people. These were people who understood the word of God. Notice with me, Part two, our our struggle, or the second point, our struggle to accept that that God loves us, to be. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? By way of footnote two, when when God says, I have loved you, that's not necessarily a message given by Malachi to God's people formally. 
God's love is throughout God's word, and therefore, I have loved you is a glorious declaration of everything that God's word has said about God's love, and they knew it. If you were to go in a time uh, machine back to this day, um, 450 B.C., and ask any Jew in Jerusalem um, from a certain age up, does God love you? They'd say yes. Secondly, if you ask them, how do you know God loves you? Brothers and sisters, they would start with God's choice of their father Abraham. And then they'd no doubt go to the Exodus and the fact that God delivered them. And then they go to the reality that once a year they celebrate that glorious de- uh, deliverance, God's love, and yet weekly, daily in the temple, the refurbished uh, temple, they're worshiping God in light of that glorious provision. So I dare say that every Jew in Jerusalem at this time understood, could mouth and say, just like you and me, God loves his people. God's statement, I have loved you, was not shocking to them. It's a, it's a, he's stating an obvious universal reality described throughout the pages of scripture. But this is their problem. With the difficulties of, 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 of life in Palestine at this time amongst God's people, as we saw last time, those difficulties, brothers and sisters, argued for a different a conclusion. With Job, our propensity as sinners is to define God's character by the temporal good or bad happening to us. Isn't that, that is what Job did, and that is what God's people were doing here. God's, the last 100 years, they've been there now almost 100 years back in Palestine. Basically, they're on the fifth generation. The temple has long been built. The, the city walls have long been uh, constructed. Um, but brothers and sisters, time in life in Palestine has not gotten any, any easier. The Gentiles continue to attack verbally abuse, threaten, and make good on those threats. The land is still, as we'll see in Malachi, still suffering under a famine. In fact, at one point in Malachi, God's people are on the verge of starvation. The temple is still just empty. Yes, we're worshiping God, but the Shekinah glory of God as promised in Ezekiel and Isaiah has not descended upon the temple. The temple's empty. And all the while, that's not to say every Jewish individual was struggling. You've got those select Jewish people who during this time were just getting more wealthy and more wealthy, enslaving their fellow Jews, seemingly indicating to us that guess what? The more evil you do, the better it's going to be for your life. So these, these people of God who knew the love of God, in essence, their response to God's statement, I have loved you, their response was very simple. You could have fooled me. Look at the last hundred years. Look at my life, God. You call that love? You ever feel that way, brothers and sisters? That's exactly how God's people felt. This is not the the thoughts and the struggles of non-believers. This is the thoughts and struggles of God's people who I think have, have, have turned myopic in their walk with God where all they can see is the good and bad that happens to them. And then they, they hold this standard. God will be defined. His character will be defined by the good and bad that happens to me. And so if enough good happens, I say God is good. Brothers and sisters, God is good. This past week I got a pay raise. God is good. This past week, I got a new job. God is good. We sold our home. 
God is good. I bought a home at half the price. God is good for the blessings he gives us. But when bad things happen, we don't come back and say God is bad, but in our hearts, we, we, we start feeling picked on by God. You can imagine how these people felt. Picked on by God. This is unfortunately a pervasive struggle in our walks with, with God. We tend to define God not by what it says in his word, by the temporal good and bad that occurs in our lives. Asaph struggled this way. The whole Psalm 73, great psalm. He brings you through the throes of this very same problem. He begins in verse 3, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there were no pains in their death, their bodies fat, They're not troubled as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And you skip down to verse 12. He goes on like that. Then in verse 12, Surely in vain I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. And here's the result of serving God, a God who loves us. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph is at a crisis in his walk. Because he looks at what's happened to his life. And then he opens his eyes up and just sees the same issues that are struggling with him. He sees that wicked person doesn't have that struggle. That wicked person doesn't have that struggle. And that wicked person doesn't have that struggle. So he begins realizing, what's the point? God loves me and this is the payment I get for God's love? So therefore, he, he came close to saying, I'm chucking it. Why read the Bible? Why go to church? Why do all of this stuff? If it doesn't give me any temporal, tangible blessing. And then we, he climaxes at verse 16 where God changes his perspective. And this is key. 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein. Brothers and sisters, I've, I've referenced this before to you. This insipid problem that we have Job did it, we see it in scripture, where God's people tend to define God's character by the temporal things that happen to them. I've encouraged you, don't allow, don't define God's character by his providence. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to refine that a little bit uh, today. For God comes and says, the problem here is, is it's all, my, it's all about you, it's all myopic. God's going to come and give his people a genuine, a true examination of his love through his providence, but from uh, against the backdrop of truth, not the subjective backdrop of me and what's best for me. And that brings us then to the demonstration of God's love. So God says, how have I loved you? And they say, how have you loved me? God's going to answer that. And he gives them three different ways that he's loved them. Three manifestations of his love in redemptive history. Would you notice with me the first one? As seen in his love choice. Verse 2, God's response. I've loved you, says uh, the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. This is an argument used in Scripture elsewhere. And it's an incredibly great argument. Brothers and sisters, we know Jacob was the promised one. He was the one that God, through which God would work. Let me ask you something. Lift your eyes up. Why did God bless Jacob? Why? 
Let me back out of Jacob. I love teaching about Saul's life and then going on to teach about David's life because Saul was a rascal, a wretched, horrible individual. He looked great, acted great, but he was, a, a, he was void of God. So we know why God cursed him. Then we come to David and we go, ah, oh, David. We know why God blesses David because David's a man after God's own heart. David did all these great things. So we falsely think the reason why God blessed David and cursed um, Saul was because of their, because of their, their moralistic stance, where their, their uh, purity. Saul was impure, he was cursed. David was pure, he was blessed. And yet you look at David's life and it's no different. Problem is, but that argument is, there's so many differences. There's so, the delta is massive between Saul and, and David, but not so with Isaac and Jacob, or uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, brothers and sisters, we look at Jacob and we go, the reason why God blessed Jacob is because he was better than Esau. And that, brothers and sisters, is our problem. The text, why why they use this? Because the answer is, the reality is, he wasn't better. Jacob and Esau shared the same mom, the same dad. They had the same birthday. They were raised in the same home. They had the same um, uh, sinful uh, proclivities. They were both wretched sinners. Esau sold his birthright. Jacob was a deceiver, a grasper from the, the start. In fact, he'd struggled with grasping and deceiving his entire life. So when you look at Jacob and Esau, you're looking at two people who, who virtually are the same. So why did God bless Jacob biblically and historically? The answer is, brothers and sisters, because of his love. You know, the only difference between Jacob and Esau is the love of God. That's it. Everything else um, falls short. The only thing that explains why Jacob was where Jacob was and Esau was where Esau was was because of the love of God either given or not given. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. Speaking of the patriarchs, which would include Jacob, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more numerous. It had nothing to do with you. You were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Deuteronomy goes on, Deuteronomy 9, 6. Know that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is, God is giving this good land to, to possess. For you are a stubborn people. We can pick it up in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Speaking about Jacob and Esau, and why Jacob and not Esau, verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now why did God give love to Jacob and not give love to Esau? The answer is, brothers and sisters, because of the good pleasure of the Lord. Ephesians 1, verse 4. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, to the kind in, or, or through uh, uh, Jesus Christ uh, uh, to himself. Why? According to the kind intention of his will. Why did he say? Because it pleases him. So brothers and sisters, you look back upon redemptive history and you see what's the difference between Jacob and Esau? The difference between Jacob and Esau is not Jacob's moral superiority. Jacob was as much a rascal as Esau was. In fact, I would argue worse. But the difference was with the love of God, whom God sovereignly directed upon Jacob before the world began. 
And so today we look back on Esau, who was not saved. And we look at Jacob, who was saved. And we say the only difference is because of the grace and the love of God. The love of God made all of the difference. With that, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what's the difference in your life? Amen. Our world is so myopic. Your world is so myopic. You and I take for granted so much. I could ask you right now 10 theological uh, questions that I would say the majority of the 7.4 billion people in the world could not answer. And you could. Think about that. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Why did he hang on a, a cross? What did he do before he hung on? What did he have to fulfill before he hung on that, that cross? I would be willing to say most everyone here could answer those questions. What is the glorious gospel of God? What makes the gospel good news? Most of you could answer that. Do you realize six billion people would be ignorant of that? And you wonder if God loves you? I remember as a baby Christian, uh, I'm sorry, as a pagan, not as a baby Christian, I wasn't even saved yet. I went to a Bible study and in, in high school. And at this Bible study, the first thing, it was, it was a Bible study. They studied scripture. And the first thing the guy did when we started the Bible study was, was he handed out verses. Hey, Bob, you get Romans 4, 5. Charlie, you get this. Sarah, you get this. And I'm there going, I have never heard of Romans. I've never heard, I have no idea what 4, 5 means. So he finally got to me and said, hey, you, your name is Greg, Greg, yeah, why don't you get so-and-so? And I said, forgive me. This is a room filled with 20 or 30 of my peers. I said, forgive me, I have no clue what you're talking about. I mean, this is a book, and you're talking about Romans 4, 5. I thought it'd be Romans, or I'm sorry, the Bible, chapter 4 in the Bible, and I don't know what 5 means. But I know what the chapters mean. And then he had to tell me the, book, the Bible's filled with 66 books, and of those books, they have chapters, and of those chapters, they've numbered every single statement, which would be verses. Brothers and sisters, I was blind to all of that. And you know what? Five, six billion people in the world could very well be blind to all of that, but you're not. And you wonder if God loves you? Wow! I, when I was in college... We had a Greek class, and we went from classical Greek translating classics to translating biblical Greek. And there was a guy in our, our, our class, we were translating to one where Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. And he comes, with his, he, he comes, he says, guys, let me tell you what. This is my first taste of Christianity. And I'll tell you what, whoever wrote this book was on drugs. We're like, you know, why would you say that? Because he was sort of a crazy guy. We're thinking, what, is he joking? He said, you've got this rock following Jesus around the entire Palestine. And Jesus turns and he curses this rock. It says, get behind me. And we said, Petros doesn't mean rock, but it's the name of a, of a person. His name's Peter. He's one of the followers of Jesus. Who? Peter? I've never, what? He knew about Jesus, but nothing else. Brothers and sisters, if you were to translate that passage, if you knew, knew Greek, you wouldn't make that uh, mistake. Now, I'm, those are three of, you could say, Greek, those are, name those are insignificant brothers and sisters you are you and i are when in our myopia we forget the incredible blessings the heritage that is ours in jesus christ that we can read the bible and understand it 
Never forget the time that a family member of mine, Janet and I were on vacation. We, we were reading God's Word, you know, having our morning devotion. And Janet came out first, and she, she talked to this family member. And the family member said, where's Greg? And she said, he's reading God's Word. And she said, he hasn't finished that yet? Lost. Brothers and sisters, I look at Jacob's background, and you see the wretched sinner that he was, and yet all of the blessings given to that man... That's what God's saying. I chose this man and blessed him, much less my word and understanding, but salvation, redemption. Wow. So first of all, brothers and sisters, God's love is demonstrated by his love choice. Secondly, would you notice, it's also seen in his providential dealings with Jacob and Esau, verse 3. But I have hated Esau, verse 3. Now, a lot of preachers today are going to take that and they're going to translate that to saying, in essence, God loved Esau less. That's what that means. God hated Esau means, because he really didn't hate him, because God doesn't hate him. God Jim simply loved him less. That's what that word means. Brothers and sisters, as one commentary said, if you translate it that way, if you understand it that way, you've just eviscerated the entire argument here. God hated Esau, black and white. You can't miss it. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean God had this emotion of hatred like you and I do? This hatred that, that wanted to just destroy him? No, that is not what that means. To say that God hated Esau reflects the doctrine of preterition. The doctrine of preterition in Scripture is the doctrine where God passed salvation by, um, he passed by Esau when it came to salvation. That's the doctrine of preterition. And we see it beautifully described in Romans chapter 9. Let me read you Romans 9.10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and not had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God's hatred of Esau, God's love of Jacob, is seen in his choice or the lack thereof. And thus, Ian DeGuid described it this way, love in this context is not an emotional feeling, but rather a covenantal term that expresses the behavior that flows out of a committed relationship. Hate is the antonym of love, and like the latter, it is a covenantal term that includes the behavior that flows from a rejection of relationship. The Lord's hatred for Esau is thus a sovereign rejection of him, preterition, and his offspring from the undeserved, he didn't deserve it, undeserved privilege of relationship with the Lord for which Jacob has been chosen. Now, if you were to translate that down to the uh, Koine, David Strain put it this way. When Malachi speaks of God's hatred of Esau, we're not, we're not to think of God's hatred as a spiteful, unreasoned prejudice coloring his actions towards Esau. That is how we hate. But God's hate is judicial, never capricious. It is holy, not vindictive. It is the passing by of sinners, preterition, just withhold, uh, uh, justly withholding undeserved mercy in order to treat them instead strictly as their sin deserves. So when it says, Jacob, I, I love Esau, I hated God's hatred of, of Esau was met out in that he did not give him redeeming grace. He did not love him. 
That is why God did what he did with Esau. He treated him as his, as his sin deserved. Esau was not redemptively blessed in any way, and this came out uh, uh, tangibly in history, specifically in the suffering of Esau in comparison to the suffering of God's people, which is where the next statement goes. Notice with me 3B. Now God says, I hated Jacob. I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I love Jacob. I hated Esau. Now let me tangibly explain what that meant for them. 3B, and I have made his, Esau's mountain, a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So there's a comparison contrast that God invokes us to have here. He's not telling us, hey, look at the temporal blessings and curses and then define me. What he's saying is, okay, if you want to look at providence, step back and define it against eternity. And if you do that, look first at Jacob's history. Yes, Jacob went into exile, 605, 597, 586. But brothers and sisters, all of that was out of love. That was out of God disciplining his, his uh, people, Hebrews 12, 6. A person without love is not disciplined. If you're loved, you're disciplined by uh, the Father. In exile, God's people flourished. And then he brought them back three different times. And here, there, he, he uses them to build the t- a temple and, and reconstruct the city walls. He blesses them and graces them through it all. Boyce wrote these words, beautiful words. All God's dealings with Jacob and his descendants was in love. When they were ignorant, he blessed them with the true knowledge of himself. When they were weak and defenseless, he empowered them and shielded them from, from enemies. When they strayed, he, di- he disciplined um, them. When they uh, persisted in wickedness, he eventually sent the Babylonian captivity as the prophets had warned he would do over many generations. Then he brought them back uh, to, Duda, uh, to Judah, established them within the walls of a, re, of a refortified Jerusalem, and had them rebuild the temple. There was blessing and judgment, building and destruction. But in all these things, God had loved them and was continuing to work with them in order that they might be a precious and holy people. That's against eternity, what God was doing with his people. Yet such was not the experience of Esau and his children. Esau participated in the destruction of 586. Think of Obadiah. They were cheering when God's people went into exile. But brothers and sisters, realize, remember in our study of Obadiah, they likewise were victimized by the Babylonians. They became a vassal nation. Remember Xerxes, or, uh, Babylon, and then later on, um, as it went into it, um, these different nations that were overseeing Esau, Edom, abused them, taxed them highly, and didn't care about them at all. Such that by the time we get to here, God's, um, uh, the Edomites have been dispossessed, their, their homes have been destroyed. And thus we pick it up in verse 4. Thus, though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build. But I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked uh, territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is has cursed forever, is the, Greek, is the Hebrew. Now, it, this occurred in the, in the fi, uh, fourth, uh, fifth century B.C. So when Malachi was written, either this just had happened, or it was in the process of taking place. Nabonida, I'm sorry, Nabonidus, the Nabataean kingdom rose up and conquered the Edomites. They drove them out of um, Petra, where they were living, to where they settled in the southern wilderness of Jerusalem, or of, of uh, Judea, south of uh, Judea. This land would eventually become Idumea, 
which is where the Edomites, that was their home in Christ's day. And in 70 AD, the Edomites would be wiped off the face of the earth. God cursed them forever. You look at the histories and you go, what is the difference between God's work with Edom and God's work with Jacob? Brothers and sisters, we're talking about the difference of, of enormous um, enormity. Everything God did with Esau, it was judgment. Everything God did with his people, it was discipline. Understand that. Incredible difference. So get this, and this is, this is a bottom line on this point. Brothers and sisters, Christians and non-Christians get cancer alike. Christians and non-Christians suffer crises and injuries and tragedies. We all do. And when you and I forget the world and look at our tragedies and say, how could God call this love? Of course we're going to curse him and die. But when we take what is common to man, a state of sin and misery, and step one step back and look at the difference between God's involvement and God's lack of, of involvement, God's love and the lack of God's love, and the difference is huge. For the believer, momentary light affliction produces for us an eternal weight of glory. Why? Because God loves us. Don't you dare define God's love by what you believe you should get and what you deserve. Man, I deserve a better life. God's bad because he didn't give me what I wanted. You're making God into Santa Claus. Sin, struggles, attack everybody. Hit everybody. We're all subject to it. But the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is God overrules. All things work together for good to those who love God. That's because of God's love for us. Romans 8, 35, Paul wrote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now notice he doesn't say, you know, well, notice what he says. All of these things are going to come to you and me. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, give that to the non-believer, they'll curse God. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ our Lord, who loves us. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? The love of God inserted into your life, if you're going to look at God's providences, let's look at it against the backdrop of eternity. God's love inserted into life means all the things that Satan would do to destroy us, all the things sin would do to destroy us, all the things that we in our sin would do to destroy us, God uses to, to, to grow us, mature us, uh, uh, temper us, and, and eventually save us. So God looks at his people and says, I loved you. First, look at your heritage. The difference between you and, and and your brother or your cousin Esau, Edom. It's night and day. Why? Because of love, not because of them. Secondly, look at your history now. Where's Edom right now? They're just suffering horribly. Look at you. You've got a restored temple. You've got walls. And brothers and sisters, get this. The line of Edom died in 70 AD, wiped off the face of the earth. The line of Jacob is alive and well today in you. You and I are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. God preserved that line at this time for you and me. 
and beyond. Does God love us? Oh boy, does he ever love us. Lastly, would you notice with me a scene in his providential dealings beyond Jacob and Esau, verse 5. And your eyes will see this. See what? See what I've done to Esau. See See what's happened to this nation of Edom right now. Your eyes are going to see that, and now there's a leap here. And you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. In other words, brothers and sisters, as you begin lifting your eyes up and looking at eternity and looking at the world in which we live and saying, yeah, what is the difference between um, the Christian and the non-Christian? Well, we're loved by God. That's why we know him. And that's why trial and tribulation can't destroy us, can't separate us from the love of God. Wow. When you and I do that, we begin seeing it not just in the Edomites. We start seeing it everywhere. And when you see it everywhere, God be magnified. Oh, how he loves you and me. Let me give you a practical one. A couple of years back, Rob Ross came back from a business trip, I believe from Taiwan. I don't know the specific country. I think it was Taiwan. And he came back and he shared with me, he said, Greg, one of the things that just struck me was incredibly sad. I walked the streets, whatever the, it was, whatever city it was, I don't want to slander a city. So whatever the city was in Asia, I walked the streets and it was packed with hookers, prostitutes. And most of the prostitutes were 14, 15-year-old girls. And at that time, I had a 14-year-old girl in my home. And the prospect of these 14, 15-year-old girls, many would not reach the age of 20. And I'm looking at my 14-year-old girl, and I go, what's the difference between, after talking, I walked away, I thought, literally thought, what's the difference between my daughter and that daughter? You know what the difference is? The love of God. That's it. They're no better than them. If they were in that circumstance, no doubt they would have turned to a prostitution. That's the only way they could survive. But what's the difference between my daughter and their daughter? The grace and and glory and goodness and love of God. Okay, I've got cancer. He has cancer. What's the difference? The difference is this cancer can't touch me. Oh, it might hurt the outward body. Yeah, I may not be able to live as long as I would have liked to. Yes, I'm going to go through horrible pain and suffering. But brothers and sisters, all of this is not going to hurt my soul in the least bit. Why? Because God has loved me. And that love will not, will not, enable, will not enable anything, allow anything to separate me from that love. So man, brothers and sisters, Malachi 1, uh, 2 through 5, incredible defense, theodicy of God's love for his people. Mechanistic Christianity. When you go through the motions, you put your time in for God, you erroneously expect God to put his time in uh, for you, tip, uh, for Tad. I'm in the word of God. I go to church. I pray. I don't sin much. Therefore, God owes me. Brothers and sisters, God's answer to you. And then when bad things happen, we go, God, I thought you loved me. Brothers and sisters, God's love to you and me is this. His love is this. Brothers and sisters, if you want to look at providence, look at the big picture against eternity. And when you look at the big picture against eternity, you will see the massive difference between your lot in life, where you are today, and where you could be if it wasn't for the grace of God. You've said it, we've said it. So there go I, save for the grace, the mercy, the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I look at a passage like this, I look at a study like this, and I walk away saying, oh, how he loves you and me. I'll close with the words of Murray McShane. Beautiful summary of the sentiment, I think, of God giving us here to his people. 
Open your eyes, Christian. When that happens, this is what you may say. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall at the last day, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Wow, what a loving God. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see him, God, as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I love. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to measure the love of God, the character of God, measured against eternity and this glorious reality, when that happens, you and I are going to say, oh, how he loves you and me. The Lord be magnified. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this, your word. It's powerful, this uh, um, response to a people who you loved so much, you were willing to condescend and allow to suffer them to accuse you of foul revolt. Yet, Lord, you did not condemn them, but, Lord, you suffered long with them and in the process gave your people from this point on this treasure of Malachi in which you address the various and sundry struggles that we fall into when, we, when our walk with you becomes mechanistic, mechanical, where we go through the motions and lose the sight of Christ. God, I pray that you would, Lord, protect us, each one of us, from the, from the foul accusation with which your people accused you in Malachi's day. Lord, may we never, indeed, go down that road, but when we do and if we do, give us the grace, each one of us, O oh Lord, by your grace, to lift up our eyes as did Asaph and see eternity and see where it all ends. And then, O oh Lord, say in response, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. O oh Lord, my flesh, my heart, they're going to fail. But thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, we will take our stand with you on the earth. Even after our flesh is destroyed, yet from our flesh we shall see you, behold you. Our eyes shall behold you and not another. Our hearts faint within us as we think of the divine love that you've loved us with through the cross of Jesus Christ. God, we love you. Protect us from these silly places our minds go when we lose sight of the love of Christ. So Lord, give us that love. We pray this in Jesus' name.